0: Good morning, church. If you'd please turn to Mark 5, 1 through 20 for this morning's scripture reading. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he was often even bound with shackles and chains but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces no one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones and when he saw Jesus from afar he ran and fell down before him and cried out with a loud voice he said what have you to do with me Jesus son of the most high God I adjure you by God do not torment me And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled.
1: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it is, can be read in our midst, can be understood. And we pray that by your word you would work, that you would put your power on display to our hearts, minds, and circumstances. Lord, that we would come to believe, and we would, as a people who are rescued, come to proclaim your mercy to us. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you would do this work in our midst this morning, and we do give you praise. We expect your word and your spirit to work in the midst of your people this morning. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Man, what a passage. What, what an episode that we just had recounted in the midst of the church this morning from God's Word. This is uh, often titled something like Jesus heals a man with a demon, and then we hear the word demon, and it's like it's the only word that we heard. And so this passage is about demons, and we're going to preach about demons, and we're going to talk about demoniacs, right? Oh, come on, not if we're paying attention to what Mark's doing as he's working his way through this passage is not about demons. Mark does not begin his book, of the Gospel of Mark, with the words, the beginning of the bad news of demons, the enemies of God. That's not how he begins. He begins with these words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does Mark want to make sure that we definitely know? we have confidence in, that we have grown in our understanding of and our faith in. It's Jesus. The purpose of the Gospels and ultimately the purpose of the whole of the Scriptures is to reveal the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the glory and grace of our God and Savior. That's the point of our passage this morning. This passage is about Jesus and particularly This passage is about Jesus, who has authority and power over all things, even a legion of demons. This is Jesus. This passage comes in the midst of a trilogy of power, all right? At the end of chapter four, we had the calming of the storm. And Jesus puts his power on display in the midst of a natural circumstance. As I was looking at that, that, this trilogy of power, really it launches with Jesus's power over a natural circumstance and his working of faith in the minds of a people who were feared, filled with anxiety and fear. So it's, it's God's power over circumstances toward us and our anxiety and fear and replaced with trust and faith. It's a test of faith to trust the presence of the Lord in the face of pressing reality and impending death. In the second episode in our trilogy on power, we have the beginning of Mark chapter 5. We have his authority over demonic power. Jesus overcomes the legion of demons. We have the suffering of the soul, where we had the suffering of the mind in fear and anxiety in the previous passage. Today we have the suffering of the soul under the weight of evil and sin. We see the Lord intervene with compassion. We're not going to miss that today. His compassion is present and his authority. And he works as a compassion and authority to rescue a man from both the power and the presence of evil. Next week, we're going to look at the third part of our trilogy of power. And we're going to look at Jesus healing a woman and raising a dead girl. Jesus overcomes next week, as we look at that passage, he overcomes disease and death, sickness and in pain. So we have the sickness of the body and the pain of death. So we see Jesus' power at work in the mind, at work in the soul, and at work in the body. We see the Lord intervene to bring wholeness, not only to the mind and soul, but to the very body of the ones that he comes to save. But don't miss how Jesus uses his power. You see, these these are clearly, Mark recording for us, a trilogy of power. But the way that Jesus uses his power is to rescue his disciples, right? And then to, to go to a man who was beyond hope in our passage today. And then to rescue a woman and a girl whose bodies had failed them. Friends, these passages are not just about the power of our God. These passages are about his comfort and his grace. The love and compassion of the powerful Jesus Listen to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Really, it's, it's at the center of the purpose of the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if in our passage today we find in this trilogy of power that he is the Lord and he is authoritative and he has great power, what he has done is he has come to leverage that power to put his glory on display in compassion upon people in need of rescue. And this morning, that's good news for us. This is who we are. We have a great and glorious, authoritative and powerful God at work to redeem. If we look at the context of our passage this morning, I do hope you have your Bible open still. We're gonna look at the details as we work through this passage. There's so many details, so many important words. We find right away an unclean spirit and an unclean man. Jesus is fresh off from shutting up the storm. In last week's passage, it ends with this, the disciples filled with fear. Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they came to the other side of the sea. You see it just flows right there in the sea being rescued. Then they step off the boat and this passage begins. Jesus is fresh from shutting up the storm. And he's confronted with a demon-possessed man who runs up to him as soon as he steps out of the boat. I get the image that he must, there's a mountain nearby. We see that in the episode with the pigs just a little bit later. I get the the image of him being sort of up on a a place where he could see the boat coming. And this demon-possessed man knew who was coming and he came running. And he met Jesus as soon as he stepped on the shore. Now, as we look at this man, we're going to call him a demoniac. We're going to call him a demon-possessed man because that's what the scriptures call him. But that's not all that he is. We shouldn't lose the perspective that the passage is going to give to us. That this wasn't just a demon-possessed man. This was a man. A man. You see, oftentimes when we look at people who are suffering, they become their suffering, and we lose the humanity of the person who is suffering. And the person who is sinning, they lose the humanity because of their sin. The person who is oppressed loses their humanity because of the oppression. This is a man, even though he's oppressed by a legion of demons. Here's how we find him. If you look at the passage, what we see is in verse 3, first of all, he lived among the tombs. That's a problem. We see that he's unsuccessfully bound with chains. All right, that's a big problem. If you have a man who is raging, and you try to bind him so he doesn't hurt himself and others, and he's able to break the bonds, now what do you do? And we find him crying out. Day and night, he's out there, and he's crying out. Unsuccessfully bound with shackles and chains. He's wrenching them apart. And no one had the strength to subdue him. And verse five, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out. This this man is unconsolable and uncontrollable, out of control of himself and out of the control of others, only under the control of this legion of demons. And we're told he's cutting himself he's cutting himself with stones certainly he couldn't be trusted to have a knife for himself or others and so he's brutalizing himself with sharp rocks on the mountainside this man this demon possessed man i don't think mark could have given us much more details about this man's hopeless suffering so quickly mark rapidly moves us through the reality of his suffering. He is literally a tormented soul. We should feel something reading about this real man. And with the torment of his soul comes the torment and the suffering of his body. I couldn't imagine seeing this man. Imagine what he looked like. Imagine the compassion that might come in you and the fear that might come if you saw him. I was reading R.C. Sproul comment on this passage and he mentioned Job. And I got to thinking, I've, as I've read the book of Job and his great suffering and his boils and his tears, I've often tried to visualize Job. It's not pretty. It's not a pretty picture, the suffering of the man Job. But Here's what R.C. Sproul says. I wonder whether Job's misery, as terrible as it was, really approached the misery of this poor soul who was tormented every moment by the focused power of hell. Do you have any compassion for this man? Can you see him? Mark certainly invites us to with all of his detail. The question for me is, in seeing him and thinking of Job, I think, well, at least I haven't suffered like those guys did. Whether it's Job and the severity of his suffering or or this tormented soul. Do we really need Jesus to rescue us from evil? Or in all of the descriptive power that Mark uses, does it serve to maybe distance us? That we don't need what he needs. Do we really have any need for this passage personally today? Or is it just a curious tale about demons that isn't really relevant to a sophisticated society like we have today, right? Let's just be curious and learn about how things worked back then. I don't know if you're influenced by a demon, but you and I both know what it is to befriend the enemy of God. You and I both know. This is exactly what the believer has been rescued from. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it powerfully, clear. We were all once children of wrath like the rest of mankind, like all of them, following the prince of the power of the air that's at work and all the sons of disobedience. This is This is the way that we are apart from Christ. We don't have to talk about demon possession to know what it is to befriend the enemy of God. There's a simple word. We use it a lot. It's called sin. And it is our natural condition to have a different father than the father who has redeemed us. I've often shared how in my teens, I decided to try on sin for a season just to see how it fit. I was in junior high. My dad had recently left and things were kind of in turmoil in my house and heart and home, family. And I tried on sin like it was some sort of fashion, like it could be put on like some sort of accessory that would make me more than what I really am, right? Like I'm just Jeremiah, I went by Jason back then. That's my first name. I was just Jason, 6th, 7th grader. And I decided to put on sin like it was a bracelet or a necklace that could improve on me. I tried on cursing and I tried on crude jokes and I thought that they were an addition that made me more me, more human, more full and acceptable to my peers. But in reality what I have discovered is that sin came from within me. You see, that sin was not an external necklace that I could put on from without. It came from within. It wasn't a fashion. It was a disease. As is always the ways of our enemy. It was destroying me. It wasn't an addition to me. It was destroying me from within and it was making me less human not more. That is the way of sin death and the devil is to diminish the image of God that God has worked by creation making us human. And sin corrupts that image so that we don't reflect to the Lord the glory of his great name as his creatures. Brothers and sisters, there isn't a person in this room that doesn't need compassion, yes, and power of Jesus Christ to rescue you and I from evil. Every single one of us. This passage is not a curiosity. This passage gives us a glimpse into why Jesus himself taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from every once in a while when we do bad things. Friends, we need delivered from evil. We need this Jesus of Mark chapter 5. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So yes, this passage is for us. It's for us today, and in it we see the power of our Redeemer and the compassion and grace of Jesus. This passage itself presents four different instances of someone who comes to Jesus and begins to beg Jesus. Now, in my little computer program that I use in sermon preparation, I, I wish I could just like click it and just sort of wrote a sermon. Instead, it just helps in discovering what the passage says, and I can click on the word beg. And when I click on the word beg, it shows all the other times that the word beg is used right there in that passage. Some of you might have that on your digital apps right now. Sorry, if you have a physical Bible, it won't work. You could try it. It won't work. But if you clicked on beg and it highlighted all of a sudden for you in your Bible, all the times that it's used, you'll see it's used four times in this one episode. It is clear that Mark is presenting Jesus as the master in this account. That's an important communication that Mark wants to make for us, that the Holy Spirit would inspire for us to see this morning. In the first two instances of the word beg, it's the demons who are begging. The demons beg Jesus. Then the townspeople beg and then this formerly demon-possessed man begs Jesus. We're going to look at the passage in that way. Look at verse 6 with me. And we see the legion of demons begging Jesus. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus, that is the demoniac, from afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out in a loud voice, What have you had to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you. I insist upon you by God. Do not torment me. You can already see him begging. As he continues, he begins to beg that he not be sent into the abyss, but sent into the herd of pigs. He's begging Jesus. I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Right away, the demons know not only who Jesus is, but they knew his power to condemn them. Do You see that? Jesus isn't just powerful. The Lord God has a plan for evil. If you look at the parallel accounts, they knew that Jesus' plan for demons was that all of the enemies of god would be thrown into the abyss and they were begging him not today not today. we know what's coming we know who you are and we know what your plan is not today it's not the time right they know their future and they know the fate of the, all of the enemies of god and they beg now there's an interesting thing that happens in the passage. If you look at the order of the events there's an order to the exchange between Jesus and the demons. It begins in verse 6. The, the demoniac runs out to see Jesus. He runs to Jesus. Jesus didn't walk into the town and say here y'all have a problem around here. No, the problem comes running up to Jesus. That's the kind of power that he has in the presence of the enemy. It's as though he could see Jesus coming and chose to meet him on the battlefield. And they do a little battle right there. It's interesting, verse 6 happens with the demoniac running up to him. But I think the next thing that happens is actually in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man you unclean spirit. Now notice the tense of the verb. Jesus was saying to him. The man's running up to Jesus, and Jesus is saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. In verse seven, right before it, if you're following with me, you'll see that while Jesus is saying this, the unclean spirit cried out, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Verse eight, while Jesus was saying. So there is a confrontation. There is a sort of battle that is happening right there. You're telling me to go out of the man, but what is it that you're doing with me? What do you have to do with us? And so Jesus calls for the demon's name. Now, We've talked about this in the past that when Jesus is confronted by unclean spirits in the past that their naming of Jesus and even in our passage today their naming of Jesus is an effort to command mastery over him. That if, an, if one could name the other then you could take a position of authority over the one that you could name. And they name Jesus as I know who you are Jesus the son of the most high God. And he tries to take the high ground. But Jesus demonstrates that he alone has authority in the episode by demanding the name of the demon. In verses 9 through 12, the demon gives his name as Legion, and he begins to beg for mercy. My name is Legion, and I know what comes next. Because he knows he's lost this little battle that happened right there. The military connotation of the name Legion. You see, this wasn't just a demon hanging out in a town. This was a a whole cohort of of demons. The word legion is a Roman word meaning up to 6,000 soldiers in a unit. And these demons were in that town doing battle. He could have said lots of other names. could have said bunches and bunches, right? And we would have thought, oh, how cute. There are bunches and bunches of demons. No, I said legion like a battle term. They've gathered and grouped in the Decapolis, in this particular town, in this region, because they're doing war, not just with this man, but with the whole region, all of what is happening there. But instead of waging war against Jesus, they're brought to their knees. Legion is brought to their knees to beg for mercy. This is a military cohort of demons. Demons. And they're brought down in a battle with just one man. Can you see it? I asked you earlier if you could see the man. Can you see Jesus and the demons? And he puts them down. He stands up and puts them down. They ask for mercy. And Jesus grants permission because he's the master. He can tell them whatever he wants. And he grants them permission their requests, Their request that they would be sent into, verse 11, pigs that were feeding there on the hillside begged him, let, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave permission. The unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus knows that the time has not yet come for the full judgment of Satan and his minions. And while he commands this horde of enemies to depart from the man, he allows them to inhabit nearby massive herd of pigs. Massive. I don't think I've ever seen 2,000 pigs in one place before. I'm not positive. I want to see 2,000 pigs in one place ever. This is a huge happening. And then I'll tell you one thing I don't want to see. 2,000 pigs stampeding down a hill and rushing off into the sea. Friends, this is a sight to see. But note who gains mastery over them when they're sent into the pigs. I don't know what the demons thought would happen. The The pigs freaked out. Much like the man who was cutting himself. The pigs were terrified and ran down the hill to their own destruction. James Edwards, in his commentary, writes, the power to prevail over the demoniac, the demonic resides with Jesus himself. He, he didn't have to call on a cohort himself. He didn't have to call down a group of angels. Jesus, it says he speaks, and the demons are expelled. I love this. His word is his deed. He says it, and it is. I'm reminded of last week's words. He stands up to command the storm. His words are, shut up and stay shut up. Peace and remain that way. His words are his deed, and it is so. Now we see that even an army of demons submit to his Command Who is this? Who is this That even the demons shudder at His name? Verses 14 through 17, we see the second group of people, the second group of people who beg Jesus, The townspeople beg him. In verse 14, the herdsmen, they fled to tell all the surrounding community what had happened, What did the people find when they returned? And again, we have details. It's in the passage. We have details about what the people find. The herdsmen, when they came back, they came to Jesus and saw, verse 15, the demon-possessed man. No, they didn't. Right? What did they find? No, they found the one who had the legion. Sitting there. Clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You know what they found? They found peace. Be still. Jesus had quieted the man. And he was quiet. I can't tell you how many times I've read that verse this week, and it, it, as much as I would visualize the, the carnage, the atrocity, of what this man's life was moments before. And all the town knew what he looked like. You and I visualized him. And now we see him. And we see the last thing on the planet I would expect to see walking into that town that day. The man was sitting. Sitting. Clothed. And in his right mind. I'm moved by that. This raging wild man The demoniac is a demoniac no more. He's just a man. And he's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's fully human for the first time. He was powerful. He could break change. He could yell and rage. And finally, he's human. But when the townspeople come upon the scene, their response is to beg Jesus to leave. Look at verse 17. It says that they begged Jesus to depart from their region. Surely they were there because they were afraid of Jesus, his power and authority. But this is also a scene with significant religious and cultural implications. You see, we aren't in the heart of Israel anymore. We're not even in Galilee anymore. We are across the sea and we are in the region that is filled with Romans, Gentiles and enemies of the one true God. We are, not, we are in a region of Gentile dominance with all of their pagan gods, the gods that are themselves legion, apart from the law and apart from worship. Of God. It's not of little consequence that Jesus allowed the demons to enter swine, these unclean animals. You see, Jesus is waging a war himself. He is saying, You may think that you have this land of the Decapolis, but the Lord has power here too. And the townspeople don't like it, they don't like the invading force of Jesus. In their city, the herdsmen had lost 2,000 livestock. 2,000 livestock. And all that happened was one man stopped raging. 2,000. An entire economy destroyed for the salvation of just one man. Jesus, it's time for you to leave. They don't rejoice, they ask him to leave. But what we have in this passage is more than just the display of Jesus' power. We have the display of Jesus' compassion. There's a, an incredible poem that I ran across this week. It's by John Oxham. The poem goes like this This is from the perspective of the townspeople. Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. We love us men. Thou lovest men, we wine. Oh, get you hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole since we have lost our swine? (laughs) How often, how often at the downfall of evil do we simply count loss to ourselves? You see, the casting out of evil often comes with the consequence of personal and cultural cost. We can't simply remain like we once were once evil is gone. When we turn from evil, we not only turn from Satan to the Lord, we turn from ourselves to another. We turn from an old nature to a new nature. We turn from an old spirit to A new spirit. We turn from one way of life to another. This means that we lose our old way. How true that the poet puts it we've lost our swine. We've lost our swine. Count the cost. Count the cost, sinner. To follow after Christ is to lose your old way. It's true. And for the first time in your life to be seated, clothed in righteousness, and in your right mind. Jesus himself will put it this way in just a few chapters. In Mark chapter 8 verse 36 he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You see, when Jesus saw the man running down the hill, hill, he saw a soul and he redeemed him. Thank God that's what he does. Thank God. For me, thank God he didn't just leave me in my foolish, foolish, immature rebellion when I was a junior high kid trying on sin. He saw a soul. Do you remember when he saw you? Do you remember his compassion and his grace upon you? That's where we are now. We turn to the cleansed man who begged him. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons, begged Jesus that he might be with him. The man desired to be with Jesus. I'm moved by the scene, the relationship and compassion that runs throughout the whole of the episode. And yet the Lord didn't permit him to stay with him. Remember how he found the man. When Jesus first saw him, the man was homeless. He was driven from his family and from society. He was unclean in countless ways. But Jesus isn't telling him that he can't come with him. Jesus is restoring the man to his people. He's sending him home to his friends, to his family. Friends, that's beautiful. You see, by not granting the man's request, Jesus is restoring the man. Go home, he says in verse 19. Go home to your friends. And specifically, tell them about mercy. Now you may think, this man could have been the 13th disciple. Now that would have been appropriate. He could have been the 13th disciple. He could have hopped in the boat and followed Jesus everywhere, right? Better yet, Make him the 12th disciple to kick out Judas, throw him out of the boat somewhere, right? Probably be better. Grow Jesus' following, you say. Build the church. But Jesus understands something that we often find hard to remember. First is this that when Jesus does not let the man get in the boat with him as he's leaving the city, the Lord is with the man. Whether he joins Jesus in the boat or not, he's become a disciple of the Lord. He's been restored to his God and the Lord will neither leave him nor forsake him. He's in the Decapolis, but so is Jesus. Jesus is in the boat. Second, part of being a disciple of Jesus isn't just to follow him, but to be sent by him. And this is one of the first indications that we get of this in all of the gospel accounts. This is really the first missionary to the Gentiles, the the Gentiles of the Decapolis. And he is sent out to make known the mercy of the Lord, specifically called by the Lord himself to go and make disciples. Friends, that's what it means to be a disciple, to be a disciple doesn't just mean to get in the boat with Jesus, but also to be sent out in his name to bear news of his mercy. The disciples weren't ready to be sent that way. Nope. But this former demoniac was ready to go and bear news of the grace of the Lord. They he'd experienced it. He knew grace. I've often wondered, as I read the book of Acts, as the church spread throughout that region, how many hearts were prepared for the good news of the resurrection of the Lord through the testimony of this one man? And all it cost were a few pigs. And Jesus sent him. And the news of mercy broke into that region. How many legion of believers are there through this man's testimony of the news of the marvel that is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the ways of the Lord, they're higher than our ways. His power is a glorious display, and we shouldn't be surprised by it, right? His power is a glorious display. His compassion is particular and profound. We see it throughout You see, his power isn't just to walk into a city and to wave his hands over the city from a stage and say, Be healed! One man comes to him and he casts out a legion. One woman touches him and he heals her. Just a few men in a boat and he saves them. It's particular. And it's profound. And his mission puts his strength on display in weakness. A demoniac the first missionary to the Gentiles. This is the way the Lord works. Friends, are you a sinner this morning? Have you made friends by nature with the enemy of God? This morning I pray that you see hope, power, and grace. Hear this, the enemies of the Lord will be cast into the pit. The fate of the legion of demons is far worse than to be drowned in the sea in a bunch of pigs. There will be a final judgment, but for the one who turns to the Lord in faith, he will sit us down, clothe us in righteousness, and put us in our right mind. This morning's passage has put on display for us a, a great marvel, but it's only a foreshadowing of the Lord's rescue of the soul from the power and the presence of evil. If you are a friend with sin this morning, know the grace of God to look at you, that you would be saved. That it's finally, by the word of Jesus Christ on the cross, his willing sacrificial death in the place of sinners, that it was far more shameful and gruesome than whatever happened to this man among the tombs. That All who call upon the Lord will be saved from their sin and restored to fellowship with God. That can be your story. What does this mean for you this morning? What does this mean for all who have trusted in the name of the Lord? That you would sit at the feet of Jesus, recognize that apart from him, you're crazy you're not in your right mind. That you aren't fully who you were made to be. You are not fully human. Because as humans, we were made in the image of God. And we deny that image in our sin. We've been rescued. The call for us this morning is to sit at the feet of of Jesus, Don't walk any longer in the ways from which you have been rescued. When you see those ways and you're trying to put them on as if they would improve you in some way, remember that you have been remade, reborn, reclothed, redeemed. Don't walk any longer. Turn again to the way of the Lord and he is faithful and just to forgive us of sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Don't miss this, though. We're not to remain seated. We have been sent. The Lord has, if we are his disciples, if we have been redeemed, if he sat us down, clothed us up, he also has sent us. Don't miss the commission. You have been sent. Let this be something that every disciple here would hear today. Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Is it true? Is it true? Then go and tell them. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Lord God, creator of all things. You made us in perfection. It is we who have rebelled. God, we praise you. We confess your right to judge us that we belong condemned with the legion. But Lord, you took our place. You suffered. You were stripped naked like this man. You were pierced like this man. And you were placed in the tomb like this man. But because you took his place, he can be clothed and have right fellowship with his Redeemer. Thank you, Lord, that you are victorious, that you yourself broke out, not by the rescue of another, but by your own power, that you are the resurrected Redeemer. And so, Lord, you are at work among your people today. You are still sending us, and you're still going with us. I pray that you would give us the boldness that we need to go and tell our friends, if we have received mercy, mercy ought to be on our lips. Thank you, Lord, for the testimony of your grace that you have given to your church that by grace we have been saved. Thank you, Lord. We worship you today. In the name of Jesus, amen.